I really wanted to face head on the question of yet again, the lie by a patriarch that his wife is actually his sister in order that they not get killed and putting her at risk. The rabbis ask, what's going on with him? Why does he say she's my sister? I'm a little bit with Nachmanides, Ramban. I like what he says, that Isaac's scared to death. He's scared to death that they're all going to get killed. So let, let's just stick with the Peshat here. And Avraham was too. This was not a case where they pimped out their wives for benefit. This is a case where they're worried that they're going to get killed. And what does it mean to be a resident alien in a place where you don't have any rights and you really don't even have rights to protection, let alone not knowing what the customs of the land are? Is Isaac someone who reminds us about fear? He is someone who's experienced the Akedah, being bound up, not having control, having his life threatened. And how does our tradition understand Isaac in that case? The common understanding, one we don't have to agree with, is that fear is a part of Isaac's personality, but it deserves to be parsed. Is there more than one kind of fear is really the contribution that the Jewish tradition is trying to make here. There's an entire commentary on the Torah. It's a philosophical commentary. It comes from the 1400s from Spain. And the, name, and the rabbi who wrote the commentary, he called it, and he is known as this term because it's his main book, is the Akedat Yitzchak, an entire ethical philosophical commentary on the Torah named after the Akedat of Yitzchak. And he writes the following. It is well known that the meaning of the word Yirah Fear is twofold. One meaning is the instinctive, unreasoning fear of a physically stronger phenomenon, a fear common to both man and beast. Jacob, fearing defeat at the hands of Esau, prays to, for God's help lest Esau smite him both and his family. Coming up, Isaac, who is afraid to be murdered on account of his wife, indulges in a lie, out of this kind of fear. But there's another kind of fear, and that is that which recognizes superior moral or intellectual qualities in someone whom one confronts. In effect, this fear is reverence. When Miriam and Aharon discussed Moses's marital relationship, God's angry at them because God says it didn't feel like it was done out of reverence, but more in a different way. God takes them to task for having failed to display it. In Mishnah Avot 4.15, we're urged that reverence for one's teacher should be on a level similar to that accorded to God, God's self. So whereas the former kind of fear is common both to the sinner and the devout person, this is 14, 1400s language, the latter, that is reverence, is a form of fear that evildoers do not know. God promises that the Canaanites will be awed by the Jewish people, not out of fear, number one, fear that we will kill them, but they will revere us for seeing our moral qualities and the fact that we are wise and discerning people. Saul is motivated to kill David out of a mixture of fear that David will usurp him and also fear that it's pretty clear that David has qualities that the people admire, God admires, and he should too. 
When one is under the influence of the first fear, of terror, fear of harm, truthfulness can easily be turned into falsehoods. And they're told because one hopes to escape detection of one's sins, like Aaron fears being killed by the mob of the golden calf, and Abraham and Isaac calling their wives sister, each one having feared for the life at that time. It's what Joseph's brothers cannot recognize at the end of Breshi, when he is wishing for reverence for moral truth and moral qualities, when all his brothers fear is that he will kill them out of revenge. I think this distinction is very important in our time. Does a legal and political system rest on fear of punishment or fear borne out of a tacit acknowledgement of its embodiment of values, of this reverence that touches our soul. Many people have the option to cheat on their taxes. Strangely enough, I was reading about this, the vast majority of people who cheat on their taxes are not working people because they really don't have a choice. Everything is shown in their paycheck. They don't have all this other income and all kinds of things they can reframe in strange ways. Many people have the option to cheat on their taxes. They can play the chances of getting audited game. Some of those outside payments in cash or tips won't get noticed or the larger games that we all read about. So for those of us who resist, why do we? Is it fear that we'll get caught? Is it fear of punishment? Or is it a deep down reverence, a respect for the morality within taxes that those who can share need to share? that not everything I have, I have, I deserved in some kind of vacuum. That on some level, that but for the grace of God go I. I could be that person addicted to opiates if only one little thing in my life had changed, had circumstance had happened differently. I could be born to a different family across the tracks. I could have had that indiscretion in my past actually noticed and my whole life ruined but it flew under the radar. And so I share because that's Torah. We share the planet. We share society. We share God. The whole temple is built around forced sharing. And this brings us to the Haftarah of Malachi, which is that what Malachi is saying is like, are you bringing your worst? Are you cheating? You bring the animal that's not really appropriate. Are you getting away with it? Forget it all. God doesn't want any of that. God would rather the temple shut down. So the Haftarah is basically saying, are you fearing punishment or are you actually having reverence for what it means? The schools today, aren't we a little scared of a certain kind of moral superiority? Don't I really want my children? I'm, I'm, I'm scared of hearing the moral voice of, of equity in public education. Don't I really want to pay higher taxes? I chose to live in this more expensive district and have a better school. I mean, I chose that. Am I not entitled to that? Don't I know I can justify it by those way, in those ways, by talking about my own sacrifices? But what if I am confronted by moral notions of equity, fairness, fellow Americans deprived, or simply the undisputable tra tragedy of children suffering? So doesn't that lead to me develop reverence I'm not going to give up something of mine, share it with the temple, because I fear I'm going to get punished. God's going to punish me. I'm going to get caught. But I, I, 
I know something is right. And if it's phrased to me in the right way, it pulls at me. I realize there's a lack of fairness going around, even if I can cheat and make it all sound fair. Deep down, it's the moral argument that I'm revering. And so that's the reverence for the moral law and my fear. I think about today the oaths of office we take or in the media. Should oaths of office be kept because of consequences for failing to keep them or because of a reverence for their moral force? I think we're seeing today that we've confused all of this. We kind of thought, I think we've confused it. We've thought all along that if someone breaks the rules of their oath, there's gonna be a consequence. They should fear those consequences of getting caught. And the last several years have revealed that it was never that because there really aren't any consequences. Maybe an ethics committee does a censure, but otherwise anyone can be pardoned and the system lacks any punitive teeth. It seems like it always has. Say anything you want, no matter how outrageous. Take an oath to legislate and then don't legislate. Take an oath that the precedent you're setting will be respected when it works against you and then just break your oath. Lift your hand to an emoluments cause and then open your shingle for business. Promise to protect the people and the boast of your special treatment. We realize it's not fear of consequences. What is being revealed is that we've had a self-fulfilling prophecy that by thinking it was really about fear of consequences and then realizing there are no consequences, we have the self-fulfilling prophecy that we're not feeling the moral force that has really been the heart of the system. If a news outlet wants to ignore facts, someone we always thought they'd be, thought that they'd be in fear of getting exposed or have, and then the fiscal consequences of losing the public's trust of going out of business. And we realize now it was a chimera. The invisible monster you actually hope is there to hold over the power of punishment is not really there. Public shaming will produce no consequences and no one's going to jail. So what we need to do is go back to these two types of fear that the Akedat Yitzchak is saying, that we need to see within Isaac the difference between the fear of punishment, the fear of threat, and a fear of not living up to the moral force that, draw, that, that, that is held over us. And I think that that's a very important way forward for things like the election and things are forever takes power, which is to restore that. We've allowed our society to creep toward a place where we see everything as a game. Worried about getting audited? You can fire the auditors. Worried there'll be a punishment? Just walk into the middle of Main Street and admit it all. Yeah, I did it. What are you gonna do about it? Yeah, I paid for my kids to get into Harvard. Want me to pay a fine? Someone's gonna go to jail for two weeks? Okay, not me, I'll turn them in. So what's the backlash? One is to take on the practices of the victim imitating the aggressor, saying that we now realize everything is a power game. So when we get into power, we'll be the saved and you'll be the damned. You'll do it our way. You Israelis have had the power, just wait until we, BDS, Hamas, or Fatah has the power. You'll see how we, you'll like it then. Or, yeah, so we took an oath that we wouldn't allow building on that land. Well, we have an army and you don't. And so here's an eminent domain order. Right? Or in our country. So you like your guns and you hate your masks? 
we'll just wait till we get into power. People like me are elected. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that our way, which is the better way, is, is that you now have to do what we say. That is not the way forward. There's no voice of God in that. That's only the voice of ideology. Ideological power is based on people experiencing the fear of harm, not experiencing the fear of what a higher principle is demanding of you. And if Stephen Colbert was prophetic in coining the word truthiness so long ago, and now we're governed by it, if uh, anyone is paying attention who writes lexicons, I would like to coin a new term, ideolatry. Ideolatry is when you take your ideology and you make it your God, you make it your idol. Those who don't share it are the damned. And you and the people who agree with you are the saved. What can be voiced in ideological terms can be changed, however, into moral terms. And that's what I think this is all calling for. It does take effort and it does take compassion and it does take rising above the way of seeing it as a power game and seeing it as someone needs to be the biggest person in the room. So it sounds quaint to say it, but that's the lesson for our future that we need. What we need is acknowledgement that our system, like the temple system of Malachi, like Torah, was never really based on fear of punishment, was never really built from that fear, that our government system, that our courts, that all of it was never really built from fear. It was built on a reverence for moral voice and moral calling. It relied on speaking to that place in politics, speaking to that place in each of us, whether it's just obeying the law or who am I going to vote for? It is, it's, it's, it's that place in each of us that says, I report that income because it's right to share. And there, but for the grace of God, go I. That it's an honor to take an oath or hold an office. And that means something greater than myself. And that's, it's an honor to uphold my office as a journalist. That is, if a society has no one upholding, reporting the truth as a society, then it'll just be like a, over a third of our Tanakh says, where the, the challenge is the king will just appoint their own prophets and subvert God's will. As we face the massive fights we have ahead in a divided country, each side needs to be operating from that place. Not we're now in power and we make the rules, but finding the moral voice in their proposals, the humanity of what their proposals are saying and trying to convince the other side that deep down they can tap into that reverence for what we can be if we make these changes and not simply accomplish it through fear. Of course, that means we have to find God before we represent God ourselves. And it is exactly what the rabbis want us to find in Isaac, that for someone who is very tempted and sometimes is simply in fear of his own life, that somehow through the Akedat Yitzchak, he finds a way to channel something greater, a reverence for that which is greater, for a moral voice. Shabbat Shalom.